Hear now the word of the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray. Father, would you capture us Uh, with those words this morning. Would you help us to begin to, to grasp your majesty? Would you help us to begin to, to grasp your, your greatness, your goodness, and to join uh, the song not only of Scripture, but the, the song that is sung even now before your throne. That sings of your power and your greatness. As we uh, come to these ancient words, would you help us to know that they, are, that they are anew this morning. They are you continuing to speak to us, to address us. So help us to hear. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive what you are saying and to be changed by it. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my memories about this time of year when I was young is the annual arrival of the Sears catalog. Uh, You see, back in the day, it used to come in a form of what we call print. (laughs) And it was huge. It was large enough to give you a a legitimate workout just to bring it from the mailbox into the house. And and each of us Robson children, we would get a turn with the Sears catalog, and we would flip through its pages, and we would dog ear. We would turn down the corner of the pages that had toys or clothes That we wanted for Christmas. This morning, I want us to dog ear Psalm 24. I want us to mark this page as containing what we should want. What we should want, not just for Advent, not just for Christmas, but what we should want for our lives. And we should mark this poetry because it articulates the highest and the best dream, the best wish for the human heart. And that is the wish 
for glory. This song teaches us to dream not of sugar plums, but to dream of glory. Now, why would we want that? Why would we wish for that? Why would we dream about that? Well, that's the question I want to put to this psalm this morning. And I think we can find some answers in the movement of this poetry. And I think there are two dominant movements here. There is an ascent and there is a descent. Ascent, descent. We should want glory because it goes up and it comes down. So first of all, up. Verse 3 of Psalm 24 places us at the foot of a hill with a problem. Places us at the foot of a hill with a problem. The hill is Mount Zion. It is the incline that leads into the city of Jerusalem, which was the political and spiritual center of God's people in the Old Testament. That's the hill. The problem is qualification. You see, this hike requires a permit. If you're going to climb this mountain, you have to meet some standards, and those standards are high. The qualification for this climb up this mountain is wholeness. It is integrity of life, external and internal. Clean hands, Pure heart, right behavior, right motivations. And that standard of wholeness is defined by God's law. What does it mean to have clean hands and a pure heart? Verse 4 answers with the second and ninth of the Ten Commandments. No false gods, no false words. You see, this describes a life that is unified, that is integrated by a love for God and a love for our neighbors. Now, with these impossibly high standards, why would we want to take this hike in the first place? Why, with this impossible permit, would we want to climb this mountain? Well, because it's God's mountain. Because it is God's Because it is the way of access into God's holy presence. This is the path that brings us before God's face. Now God's face is an image of being welcomed by Him. It is an image of His glad and and delighted acceptance of us. And his blessing, his empowerment on us to accomplish his purposes. God's face is his acceptance and his empowerment. And to understand the full significance of his face, to understand the full significance of this hill, we have to place it in the context of verses 1 and 2. What do verses 1 and 2 tell us? They say the fullness of the earth, the fullness of creation belongs to who? To the creator. And so if we are going to know the fullness of life in creation, we have to be connected to our creator. 
And so the poem starts huge. It starts embracing everything and then it narrows all of creation to one hill, to one mountain. And it says, here it is. Here is the possibility of that life giving connection to your creator. And so see this. This poem, it draws a map. And it is the map of glory. It is the geography of glory. Because glory in the Old Testament is the visible, audible, tangible demonstration that God is with His people. It is the visible, audible tangible demonstration of a connection between heaven and earth, between creator and creation. This is the map of glory. This is the geography of glory. In all likelihood, David wrote this poetry in response to that moment when he, after conquering the city of Jerusalem, brought the Ark of the Covenant the symbol of God's presence with His people, brought it into that city. I would not be surprised if this poetry didn't resound in the ears of Solomon, David's son, in that moment after he had built the temple in the city of Jerusalem and he had prayed for God's blessing and then he saw glory. He saw the shining presence of God fill That place. And this poem speaks of the possibility of entering that. This poem speaks of the possibility of transcending life on our own. And belonging to our Creator. Of transcending life on our own and living before the welcoming, empowering face of God. That's why we should dream of glory. But maybe you hear that and you still say, not interested. No thanks. Well, I want to argue that yes, you are interested. We are all interested in glory. The evidence is around us everywhere. The evidence is around us all over the place that we as human beings, whether we acknowledge it or not, we are looking for transcendence. We are looking for something that will take us beyond ourselves. Something or someone that will make us a part of something bigger, something larger, something significant, something meaningful. We're all looking for glory. We do it with the arts. We do it with entertainment. We do it with work. We do it with important causes. And the search for glory, I am convinced, is a large part of what drives our passion for sports. If you're to the organization Fanquakes, they they go around and they put uh, they they put seismometers 
The instruments that are that measure earthquakes, they put them in sports stadiums. And so last Saturday, when a player from Ohio State ran into the end zone in the second overtime, winning that game, the shoe in Columbus, Ohio, registered a 5.79 on the Richter scale. <laughs> a measurable earthquake. Why? Why do we do that? We're looking for glory. We are looking to belong to something transcendent, meaningful, significant. And all of those pursuits I mentioned, they are not inherently bad. But here's their danger. They can become substitutes. They can become substitutes for the glory that is only available in the presence of God. We can take created things and try to replace the Creator with them. We try to take these experiences of beauty, these experiences of meaning that are good, and we substitute them for true glory. We substitute them for what only God can give. We substitute them for the glory that is ours only through worshiping and belonging to Him. Now here's the problem with that. If I've convinced you to want glory, uh, we have a couple of problems. One is geographical. Because uh, unless something has happened that I don't know of, we don't sit physically at, at the bottom of the incline that leads to the city of Jerusalem. And even if we did, second problem, there are those impossible requirements. There is that impossible permit to hike up that mountain into the glory of God. So what do we do? Well, we need a glory that not only goes up, but we also need a glory that comes down. Verse 7 is jarring. It is surprising. It's a little awkward and confusing because there is this sudden shift. Uh, Before this verse, we are at the bottom of the hill, looking up into the city, looking for glory. And then all of a sudden in verse 7, we're in the city. But glory isn't there. We are in the city, but the Lord of hosts, the King of glory, the presence of glory, He's outside knocking. And the gates and the doors of the city are assaulted with this cry, with this demand for openness. Open, lift up your heads, open and let him in. Why this jarring shift, this surprising change? Well, I think this communicates that God is free from Jerusalem. God is free from Jerusalem. His presence, His glorious presence, is not automatic. It is not intrinsic in that place. And so for that place to become an access point 
to his glory, he must do what? He must descend. He must enter the gates and the doors. And not only that, but he can also choose to get up and leave. Which is what happens in the story of this mountain. He descended on the temple during the time of Solomon. But then Ezekiel the prophet, he saw something else happen. He saw that that after God had over and over again called his people to repent and they had failed. He saw that because God's people and especially the leaders of God's people, they did not have clean hands. They did not have pure hearts. Ezekiel saw the glory of God, the presence of God lift up from the temple and leave town. Which was the tragic loss of the vision of Psalm 24. It was the tragic, traumatic ending, it seemed, of this dream. Unless there was a new descent. Unless glory once again came down. Which it did. Not in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem. And that's why when Jesus was born, that's why the shepherds heard the angels singing about what? Glory. That's why the wise men, what did they see? They saw light. They saw a shining that led them to the place where Jesus was because in Him, the King of glory, definitively arrived. Glory descended in Him. And although He was born in Bethlehem, where was the destination of His life? Where was He headed all of His ministry? He was headed to Jerusalem, where He would climb a hill, And he would bleed to cleanse the hands and to purify the hearts of those who believe in him. If you do community Bible reading, you know that recently we read through the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews tells this story that I'm talking about. The book of Hebrews begins by saying that Jesus is the radiance of what? He is the radiance. He is the shining of the glory of God. And it says that he came down. And Jesus coming down, he was tempted in every way that we are tempted. But without sin. You see, he fulfilled those requirements. He met the standards of clean hands and a pure heart. And he was not only tempted like we are tempted, but he suffered like we suffer only more. Because he became the perfect sacrifice for sins. And what is the result of his descent? What is the result of the descent of glory in the person and work of Jesus? Climactic Hebrews chapter 12 says, 
through His work, He does what? He brings us to a mountain. He brings us to a mountain. And it's not the doom and gloom of Mount Sinai. It's not the judgment of God's law on our failure to have clean hands and pure hearts. No, He brings us to the carnival of Mount Zion. Not the heavenly city, but the better, fuller, more powerful, true, heavenly city. You see, Jesus, His descent leads to our ascent. His coming down and suffering for our sin lifts us up into the welcoming acceptance of God. Lifts us up into the empowering presence of God. One of the results of these terrible fires that are happening in Tennessee and those surrounding areas is that a lot of beautiful mountain hikes have become inaccessible. Uh, The gates are closed. There are signs on the trails that say no admittance, closed to the public. But do you see what Jesus has done in coming down? The trail that leads to God's presence, to God's glory, He has removed. The closed sign. To shift the metaphor to something a little bit more Florida, Jesus has taken the no swimming signs off the beach of God's glory. And He welcomes us in. He welcomes us in to that life-giving connection to our Creator. Now, we don't experience the fullness of that yet. The work of the King of glory, it's not done yet. Jesus arrived in His birth, life, death, resurrection. He continues to arrive in the work of His Spirit in His church. And He will one day fully and finally arrive when He comes and He makes all things new and the heavenly city descends and the earth is eternally full of the glory of the Lord. What do we do in the meantime? What do we do in the meantime? Well, we let this poetry, we let this song assault the gates and the doors of our lives. We let this poetry assault the gates and the doors of our homes, of this community. We realize This call, we realize that the King of glory has come. We realize and we hope and we dream that the King of glory is coming. And then the question becomes, are you aware? Are you awake? Are you open to the Word to the presence and to the work of the King of glory in your life? Are you open to the words of Jesus as He pronounces forgiveness, cleansing, 
on your life? Are you open to the presence of God's Spirit as He empowers you to carry out the will of your Creator for your life? Are the gates of your life open to the King of glory who has come and who will come? This is why the traditional observance of Advent involved the practice of fasting. A practice that I want to commend to you during this season. Because here's what fasting does. Fasting oh, it wakes us up. Fasting creates an openness in us. Fasting takes something that, that is good, but that can become a substitute glory. And we for a time set it aside. To recalibrate our hungers, to recalibrate our thirst, to recalibrate our vision for what is true glory, for what is truly nourishing for our lives, which is who God is for us in His Son Jesus. This summer, the, the Olympics were on television. And the broadcast of the Olympics <clears throat> often showed beautiful scenes of the city of Rio. But then what the television stations would often do is over these beautiful scenes, they would put advertisements. And so you had this gorgeous vista of the sun setting on the mountains. And then they'd throw up a promo for Bridget Jones's baby or something like that. And I found myself frustrated and my neck craning to try to see the beautiful scene that was being obscured by those advertisements. But see, that's what happens in our lives. We have a beautiful scene set before us in Psalm 24. We had a beautiful scene set before us in the fulfillment of Psalm 24 in the gospel, in the message about who Jesus is, what he has done, is doing, and will do. But that scene, it gets obscured. It gets obscured even by good things in our lives. So will you let this song help you to crane your neck and see what is truly beautiful? Will you let this Poetry teach you to dream of the glory of God. And would you let this teach you to open your life and receive the beginning of that gift, the beginning of the coming of the King of glory into creation through Jesus. Let's pray.